Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The absolute pleasure of sharing this stage with Rose Tremaine, a writer who I suspect I can actually say needs no introduction and all that kind of gubbins, and I don't need to say has won the Orange Prize, and I don't need to say has won the Whitbread Novel of the Year, and I certainly don't need to say something about Sacred Country winning the James Tate Black Memorial Prize, so I won't say any of that. <laughs> I'll just say that it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for joining us, Rose. Thank you. Um, this is the new novel, as I suspect many of you uh, know, Gustav Sonata, which was published, I think, in spring. Is that right? Yeah. So it's been out for um, a few months. A really, I think gorgeous piece of work. We're also celebrating an anniversary, I think we can say as well, because it's 40 years since the publication of your first novel, uh, Sadler's Birthday, so perhaps we'll be talking about that as well. Um, I wonder if we can begin, if I can begin by asking you to introduce us to this Gustav. Okay, um, this is set in Switzerland, and um, I think Switzerland is, is a country we all think we know, because there's a lot of sort of emblematic things that we know about Switzerland. Mm. <laughs> watches and mountains and, and clocks and, and chocolate. And, but I wonder if, if, if many of us know it very well, um, that we all have a kind of Switzerland of the mind. Um, I know it a little bit because I was sent to school there for a while. But it's a country that's always intrigued me, and I am particularly intrigued by this idea of neutrality. Um, I think in particular, I'm leading now into actually answering Michael's question. Um, <laughs> Uh, the idea of neutrality was the thing that led me to this story because I think that um, when we think of Switzerland in the war, we imagine that um, the Swiss were very sort of serene with their neutrality. Um, and of course, the reality is that they weren't at all. They were absolutely terrified that the Germans would invade at any moment, you know, despite the, 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 the kind of protection of the mountains and uh, the professed neutrality. Um, but they were in a state of, 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 of real panic. Um, and there is a, an episode in this book, which we may go on to discuss, which um, uh, takes place um, in the war, um, and which does indeed test uh, Swiss neutrality. So I was very interested to locate something in Switzerland, but not exactly the Switzerland, the picturesque Switzerland that we all think that we know, but in a rather drab little town in Mittelland, which is, is sort of in the north, but middle of Switzerland, not near any picturesque scenery. And to, um, to create a person, Gustav, 
who we meet when he's very young, um, who strives for a kind of um, mental neutrality. Um, he's told by his mother early, aged five, that what Swiss children have to practice is self-mastery. I think we would just call it probably self-control, but she, quits this, she, she uses this, this rather more kind of literary term, self-mastery. Um, so this is a story of um, a little boy who is not loved by his mother, um, and so is emotionally, right from the get-go, is tested and tested and tested and tested. Um, and it's his journey through trying to be a, a, a neutral but caring self. Um, uh, there's much more I could say, but I, I don't want to kind of say everything up at the beginning. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Just go, go right through the book. <laughs> um, it's, that's very interesting. You should start immediately with that idea about um, self-mastery and the slight grand edge to it. The idea it's, it's, it's formative for Gustav, but it's perhaps the idea that it's, it's a kind of Swiss founding myth as well. That gets talked about, doesn't it, as well, quite early on in, in the story. The idea that Switzerland's founded on this yeah. idea, and in fact, yeah. neutrality springs from it, but it's a kind of weakness as well. Is that, is yes. that fair to say that? Yes, that's right. And um, when that neutrality is tested during the war, it has, um, we perhaps shouldn't leap ahead to that, but it, it has very desperate and dire consequences on the life of this little family. Mm -hmm. um, so. Yes, I mean, I think it's 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 a thing that that that, that I well, I don't know. I mean, I, I won't speak for the audience, but I, it isn't something that I had ever given much thought to. It's always in in, in old war films, you mm -hmm. know. If the guy, if the good guys can get away and go to Switzerland, then they're going to be safe, you know. That's the sort of <laughs> you know, if Steve McQueen could just jump over the wire and get into Switzerland, <laughs> he's going to be fine. But of course, Switzerland was, was not particularly fine. They had their own problems, and they were stretched between the two sides. I'd never thought, until you said that, I hadn't thought this was a sequel to The Great Escape. Well, I mean, your yeah. sequel to The Great Escape. This is Steve McQueen novel. <laughs> uh, also, you know, and, no, and nowhere safe. There is no kind of mythic, happy film version. You can run off Switzerland and, yeah. I'm sure so. that Switzerland now, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a while since I, I've been there, which may surprise you, because you would think that um, to set a novel in Switzerland, I would have to go rushing back there. But it's, it's a funny thing. Um, how the imagination works. I'm sure there are other writers in this audience who might um, be attentive to this. Um, how the, the writers, the, the fiction writers' imagination works. That if if I get to the point through research, through looking at, through reading, through looking at pictures, talking to people, doing all the, that the other research, other than actually going to the place, if I get a, a kind of strong enough um, imaginative picture of the place that I'm going to write about, it is it. I always feel it's quite dangerous to go to the actual place. Mm -hmm. um, it was the same when I was writing my novel set in, in the South Island of New Zealand. I had been there, found the idea, remembered the landscape, taken photographs, but then I, I wrote the novel a little bit later, and I thought, well, I'd better go back and verify all this. But I had a, such a strong imaginative picture mm -hmm. of my own New Zealand. I thought, well, I think I'll let it rest. So the seeds of it can lie quite deep, can't they, in dormant, and you, the key is actually not to go back and pin it all down and kind of, as a Swiss clock. Well, of course, you, you, um, you risk to find things which are wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I am as careful as I can not to you know, make errors. I mean, that ev everything gets checked and rechecked by other people. But I think um, 
Well, it, I mean, it's the same when I was writing about 17th century London in, um, in Restoration, that um, obviously I did a ton of reading for that book. Um, what I, I'll just give you one example from that book. Um, significant in my reading uh, case for that were the Pepys Diaries, which I'm sure many of you know, and they are spellbindingly mm -hmm. good and funny. Um, and one of the things that, that struck me about there are so many things which amused me in Pepys, but one of the things that amused me most was the food that he ate. Um, he used to eat, um, as an example, boiled lettuce and cream and beer for breakfast. <laughs> and I thought, this is really brilliant, because actually if he's eating, <laughs> he's eating boiled lettuce and cream and beer for breakfast, any meal that I can invent for him is going to be perfectly acceptable. <laughs> so I, um, you can go through the book finding weird combinations if you like. But that's just one little example of how the imagination takes over. Mm. It's released by finding one little uh, fact um, into, into lots of invention. That's interesting you should say that. I looked back at the TLS review uh, written by an 18th century historian, Pat Rogers, of Restoration, and he called it an anti-historical novel. I don't know what that means, wherever you, that's a vile phrase, and you're going to walk off stage. What I mean is, is that, what I think he means is that you don't pick up a detail and give us a history lesson. You feel these yeah. details are around you and the research is needed to make that happen, yes. but it's not the point of the novel to, to do that. It's all behind. It's also that it, that it has at its heart, it has an invented character. Mm -hmm. I mean, unlike Hilary Mantel, who writes right. yeah. real, uh, you know, she tries to get uh, through the sort of inner skin, of, inner mind of a real character, a character who actually lived. I mean, there, there is this a walk-on part for, for Charles II in my book, but I, you never go into his thoughts. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's the way I like to, to, to uh, approach history. I mean, I wrote a, a short story not so long ago about the death of Tolstoy, which has, has a very strange location. He was on his mm -hmm. way. He was running away from his wife, aged 80-something. Mm -hmm. Sort of not a tremendously good idea, but he was. <laughs> and, um, at, at any age. <laughs> yeah, at any age. Um, running away in the middle of the night with his daughter. And he's taken ill, and he arrives at this little station called Astapovo, which is on the Smolensk line, the, the line between Smolensk and, and Moscow. And he's, he's so ill by the time they get to Astapovo that Sasha, his daughter, takes him off the train. And he's carried to the station master's office, where a few days later he dies. So the great Tolstoy is in the middle of Russia, nowhere. And I thought, this is, a, this is a fascinating story, but it's a story a lot of people know. Then I suddenly thought, wait a minute, what was going through the mind and the heart and the, the kind of worry level of the station master? <laughs> um, so my story is not really about Tolstoy. It's about the life of the station master. So that, it, that just it, it gives you a flavor of what I'm trying to do. <laughs> of what, what you're really up to. Yeah, what I'm really up to. Now, that's in um, The American Lover, isn't it? It's that yeah. most recent yeah. uh, collection of stories, yeah. which just rove around. It's incredible. I mean, the, the last story is 21st century Romeo and Juliet, isn't yeah. it? 21st century yeah. Juliet. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's also a story in it, it's captive in, in that one. Absolutely brutal mm. short story. And a man, you're not quite sure where it's going to go, I, th I think, from, from the outset. And you don't quite know where the title has come from. And then, of course, I can't give away what's what sort of happens. But it's quite a roving collection, isn't it? There's sort of, sort of, a bit in Paris. Yes, I mean, the thing about, and we seem to have drifted onto the subject yeah, of sorry, short stories, but away, anyway, I mean, just one thing perhaps to say about the short story, which I, I think y you might agree with, is that um, I think it, it's, I think readers, um, 
read short stories in a different way from the way that they read novels. I think mm-hmm. um, we surrender to novels much more willingly. We kind of are carried along by the by the narrative, by the minds of the characters, by the by the ideas being being explored. Um, and I think when we read short stories, we're, we we turn ourselves into critics. We all mm-hmm. we all become you, Michael. Oh, okay. <laughs> we. Um, we're much more critical of the form and we're thinking about is the ending going to be satisfactory in relation to the beginning, all those things that short story writers uh, are meant to be thinking well, about. And I think the mind. readers think about them too. So they're difficult things to yeah. write. Really. But in, in the novel, you think maybe readers sort of let go of that a little bit and they, they allow themselves to wallow and enjoy. I think if they, if I think you, you reach, um, I mean, we, we can talk about this in the question phase if you want, but I think that most readers reach, um, a, well, I know that I do, reach a, a moment in a book mm-hmm. where they feel that there is somebody at the helm, as it were, mm-hmm. like, okay, I needn't worry. This writer may be going in different directions, but she's going to take me there. Right. She, you know, you, so you surrender to that. I think if, if, if it's all kind of, you know, things don't seem to fit or the writer um, is sort of experimenting with styles and not settling down, then you don't feel that. But assuming that the writer is in control, I think you do then surrender to the story. Right, and you're, you're, you know you're sort of in safe hands. As yeah. Were. I mean, yeah. I, I, I think a creative writing teacher told me that was, for him it was around the 60-page mark. Yeah. He just knew. Yeah. If, if it wasn't going to get better after that if it started badly. And you told, you, you told Richard Holmes, who I live with, says yeah. that he can never read a novel beyond page 79. <laughs> <laughs> um, does that make things difficult? <laughs> no, he said, well, if it's past the page 79 test, it's really good. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wonder if that brings us back to this and, and the, the structure of this book obviously the word sonata is, is in the title mm. the musicality there which you've, you've used before in, 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 in stories so did, was that always there for you with, with this particular book would that come later and, um, it, it didn't it couldn't come right at the beginning but I knew that music was going to be um, very central to the book the great um, passionate friendship that Gustav has um, which starts when they're very little is with this boy Anton who's a, who's a Jewish boy um, and he's very talented he's a very talented pianist from a very young age um, and um, the, the, the terrible affliction that he has is that as he as he um, is put up for competitions and all the things that he is perfectly capable of winning he is absolutely overcome by by stage fright to such an extent that he's sick and he, he, he just can't manage it so he has this terrible affliction um, and Gustav is the one person whose presence at a concert or at a a, a session where um, he's got listeners um, sort of consoles him to some extent. So music and the power of music was always going to be at the heart of the friendship and at the heart mm-hmm. of the book. And then it occurred to me quite near the beginning that it, it was a story that was going to need to be told in three bits mm-hmm. um, and that the sonata form has three movements, exposition, development and recapitulation. Um, provokingly for the readers, this um, the middle section, which is meant to be development forwards, actually develops it backwards, um, which is extremely annoying. But um, in fact, it's necessary because I think, um, without giving away too much, I think by the end of um, the first section of the book, uh, where we've seen Gustav's childhood being blighted by the fact that his mother doesn't love him. And I think the question that everybody is asking um, all the way through that first section is why 
why doesn't she love him? What's what's wrong with her? You know, he's a sweet, kind little boy, not badly behaved. I mean, he's a good he's a good child. Um, and so, what I do in the middle section is to go back significantly to what I came in talking about the war and what happened to her during the war to make her the way she is in section one. So it is a development of a kind. Yes, um, there are sort of clues planted in the first section, yeah. which I don't think we can go into too much what they are. We? Yeah. We're given clues that then the second section doesn't exactly answer, but I mean, it, it sets your to some extent. Down. To does. some extent, yeah. it does. Yeah. Yeah. Reasons. yeah. Um, and that also, I suppose, explains the way she behaves, not just with him, but with Anton. Everybody. As well. Everybody actually knows. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I, I kind of rather self aggrandizingly said that I wanted this novel to, to work like a Swiss watch, um, <laughs> i.e., to have a, a very kind of um, easy, to, easy to follow, easy to work with um, facade, but that there are quite complex workings going on, emotional intellectual workings going on underneath, um, which is probably a definition of how all the fiction works when I come to think of it. But, um, you know, that's, that, was my, mm. that was my idea for it. It certainly seems to be part of a... Uh, uh, well, tell me if I'm completely wrong. You see, the interest you have in craftsmanship in general. I'm thinking of the Evangelista's Fan, a story about, you know, a kind of watchmaker yes. or a yes. barometer maker, isn't he? And uh, yes. I suppose in this, Anton's playing the piano. Yes. Um, yeah. But this is where the novelist's kind of craft perhaps really lies. Kipling said a good thing about craft. He said that every craft, if you understand it, um, he, he mentioned hedge layers, you know, right. people who cut hornbeams and lay them sideways so they don't die, but the hedge is laid sideways. I've seen people doing this in Norfolk. Um, and Kipling said if you watch the hedge layer work and you can describe this, it will be passionately interesting. So I think if one is, is going to go into how something works, like when I was, work, uh, when I was writing uh, this novel called The Colour, which is about gold mining in, in the 1860s, um, I did read a heck of a lot of, of actually how, which tools were used and how they were used and you know, what kind of physical exertion was needed in order to um, get anywhere near digging down to find the gold. Um, and in, in um, restoration, of course, I had to follow the trail of medicine, mm -hmm. uh, terrible 17th century medicine where they knew nothing and made people worse on that. Um, so, uh, yes, yeah, so in this, um, in this case, I mean, I, I, music, I, I used to play the piano myself. No, I mean, really not at all well. But it's, it's rather, I think, tantalized me all my life that I, I, that I love the sound of the piano in particular. And I know my own capacity with it, which is, you know, very small. Um, but I'm always sort of, uh, I, uh, well, again, in, in music and silence, although it's a different instrument, um, that the music is something that, that's kind of drawn me back to, um, I think, again, perhaps it's something that does speak to audiences, that, that perhaps all of us have a, have a kind of, you know, if we, do, if we can't play an instrument, we, we, it's a consolation, it's, yes. you know, it has so many different roles. It's a memory trigger. Nothing triggers memory more brilliantly than music, I think. It's music, you've heard, yeah. yes, that's absolutely yeah. it, I think. And the other thing I, I think I've seen, you, you said about music and silence, you, you read some um, Hamlet and sort of Shakespeare to take you back into a certain kind of language. Yeah. Is, it, is this a sort of, are, are you reading fiction as well as non-fiction for certain habits as well, useful things? Well, I tend to try and avoid fiction when I'm writing right. fiction. I mean, not that I, that I don't love reading fiction, but I tend to try and, and you know, read history or biography, right. um, or even 
even poetry, although there's not much even good poetry. Po- even poetry, there's not much good poetry being written. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. At the moment, I don't think, but... Uh, what, what good poetry? Is there good poetry around? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's not much. There's not much. And we perhaps oh. won't go down there. Uh, okay, we won't go into talking about <laughs> <laughs> a list of poets. We're going to now slam. But you're reading fiction, your fiction between... Other people's fiction, that is. You're reading that between, actually, between. writing novels. Yeah. And the books you, you come back to for style and structure, is, is it, are you reading them for just the pleasure, to get lost in them? Or are you yes, reading to get lost, well? exactly. To The thing I was saying, to surrender. Um... I mean that that this this thing at the end of a day to return to a book. I'm particularly if one is, is you know in in the course of one's life you know it's a sort of worries keep coming, <laughs> a worry of one kind or another, and to actually surrender the last sort of uh, you know hour of your day to to somebody else's story, somebody else's world. But it has to be real. This is something I find myself saying as I celebrate my 40th year as a, as a writer, that, that I, I'm really not interested in fiction that doesn't feel r- real to me. And, I, some, and that w- I would include some of my early work in that, that I go back and read things that I wrote when I was much younger. And I think, actually, well, they, maybe they tell quite an interesting story. But uh, what I feel very passionately now, and what I hope does work in this book, is that everything that happens, and, and in particular the ending, um, has to be earned by what has gone before. It must feel absolutely real and truthful to me, and then, therefore, I hope to the reader, um, and which involves sometimes a lot of rewriting. You know, I've, I've written something which belongs in the story, but doesn't belong in the kind of emotional chain of what's happened, and so it has to be reconfigured. Um, truth, truth is all in fiction, I think. I mean, it's a truth of a particular kind. It's an imaginary truth. It has mm-hmm. to feel real. I mean, would you agree with that? Then? Yes, I'd agree with that. Yeah. Are you remind me, I'm just reading, a, a, I think around that time that, that Saddle's birthday came out, uh, uh, Antonia White um, was celebrating because Virago, I think, said they'd republish Frost in May. Yes. And there's a lovely diary entry, which I only just, just read, where 
she says, I can't, you know, this is great, I can't believe it, I'm being sort of rescued in a way. And she rereads it and says, oh, it's, it's not bad. And mm. <laughs> but the, the bit that really strikes her, she says, but those conversations, with my, those arguments with my father, they're absolutely true. And that's the word she uses, she says, yeah. that's, that, yeah. that hits you. Everyone else can yeah. read it as fiction, but she was, yeah. that was really yeah. perfect. Yeah. But you, you're fairly merciless with your earlier work. You, you're actually saying you, you read, re-read it and you... Well, because I, you're I striving think, to make these things Yes, perfect, I think all writers are, probably. I mean, mm-hmm. in a career as long as mine, um, you know, I was, it was in my late 20s when I first I started writing Sadler's Birthday. So, um, yeah, I, I sort of think, well, I, I could do it better, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, if, we can, if we can perhaps veer on to talk, talk about that a, a little bit. I mean, when I suppose you, um, you had a day job, didn't you, when you this book was... Yes, what, what I mean, I used to say, when I was out. teaching uh, UEA, I used to say to the writers, um, would-be writers, don't give up the day job, because mm. otherwise the pressure on you is intolerable. And I didn't make any money out of writing at all until Restoration was published, which is my fifth book. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting to note the climate in publishing. I was, I was talking about this to a publisher the other day, actually, that um, success is... I mean, you, you, I'm sure you, you are aware of this, the TLS, that, that success is demanded of writers much earlier now. I mean, my Restoration was my fifth novel, and none of the... Um, it, that suddenly was a sort of a breakthrough, but none of my early fiction before that had sold at all well. And I think that if I was working in the climate of publishing today, I would have been dropped and probably wouldn't have, had, wouldn't have found another publisher. So... I would have been completely washed up in my early 30s, you know, having right. published four books and then so we really live nowhere quite to a, go. A kind of, in that sense, quite an unhealthy book culture where somebody can just be re- after two books if you don't make the cut. Well, I, it, it's sort know. of become like that, though, hasn't it? Yes, it because, seems it's really Because money is, is much more... Mind you, I will tell you that the, the um, sum that I was paid for Sadler's Birthday in my first book was £350. I'd take that. <laughs> <laughs> Not very much. <laughs> a year's work. For a year's work, yes. I see why you have to keep the day job at this yeah. point. Keep yeah. the day job. Keep the day job. Yeah. So it's good, good advice. And did you, the advice you were giving students, would you stick to this yourself or is this do what I, do what I say, <laughs> not what I do? You're le- I, I what, keep the day job? Keep the day job. I mean, this is, yeah. uh, I guess... Teaching writing is something slightly different, isn't it? Obviously, you, you're not necessarily just... Yes, I mean, teaching is, is a slightly misleading word, I think, when right. it comes to doing what you do when you're running a creative writing course. I think it's, it's much nearer to what you do. It's editing. Mm-hmm. Right. It's editing. Um, and editing and reviewing, in a sense. It's finding what works in, in, in a piece of prose and what doesn't mm-hmm. work. What's funny and what isn't. What, what, is, you know, what, what is strong and what is weak. And putting your fingers on those things and saying, okay, this is the way we can, we can get these better. I made a little vow to myself. I, I became a sort of temporary lawyer when I was teaching creative writing. Lawyers have this, this, this little um, thing that they say to themselves in court, you never ask a question to which you don't know, to which you don't know the answer never and i thought that is the way to help writers you don't present them with you know saying this is not working um, go away and solve it you say this isn't working and this is how you might solve it not an absolute this is how you must solve it because that's that's too kind of dirigiste about mm-hmm. mm-hmm. 
this is how you might solve. Here's an idea to go away and try. And inevitably, um, as I find in my own work, if something isn't working, if I try something as an antidote to what's not working, it may not be the solution, but it may lead to the solution. So that's what I used to, to say to the writers, you know, um, it isn't working for these reasons. And here's something you might try. But that's all one is. One is a, a helpful editor. And my old friend Malcolm Bradbury, who I, I used to do team teaching with Malcolm mm -hmm. Bradbury for a year. And um, he said that, 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 that um, writers, they, you, you, can't, you can't teach writers how to write. He said what, he, mm -hmm. what, what his, 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 his phrase was, you can't teach writers how to write, but you can teach writers who can write to write better. <laughs> um, and that's the sum total of it, I think. I think if, you know, if somebody comes to you with, with no kind of modicum of talent, it's very hard to get them <laughs> going. So if I come to you with my novel that ends, I woke up and it was all a dream, I'm, I'm out. That's a hopeless case. Well, you might be, Mark. Okay. <laughs> well, I won't be trying that. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you well about, about Sacred Country. I mean, I see that as a kind of ah. novel well ahead of its, of its time. I mean, well, recognised, I suppose, with, with, a, with a prize. But was that a, a breakthrough for, for, for you, too, as technically? I mean, it's well, Sacred Country, this is a, this is a novel um, about a little girl called Mary who believes that she's in the wrong gender. I believe that she's a boy. And I wrote this in 93. And um, when it came out, I mean, this is a long time, how many years ago is that? Let's uh, not do this kind of mess. Yeah, a long time ago. Um, and um, when, it, when that book came out, um, a lot of the reviews said, oh, this is such a marginal subject. Why is this of any interest to us? And I found myself sort of defending it in the following way by saying, well, you know, it's also a metaphor. The, the boy inside little Mary is, is also a metaphor for the, the buried person inside all of us, that we all have a kind of buried self wh who is, uh, you know, wiser, cleverer, more uh, benign, or, you know, all the things that we, we want to be. And I said, well, it's, it's exploring that, the, the buried self. Um, and that was kind of my, you know, my get-out clause for having written this novel, which everybody thought was, was um, not interesting because it was so marginal. And now, um, questions of gender and transgender and, uh, are kind of absolutely there. And this novel is um, going to be brought back in, in the spring um, uh. with an introduction by Peter Tatchell, who is going to point out that... Well, it doesn't really need pointing out. Right, it? right. But he's going to um, point it out anyway. He's going to point out that, that, that um, this is something which was... Um, I mean, fiction writers are very seldom ahead of their time, I think. We're usually behind our time, because <laughs> novel takes so long to write, and life has moved on in the interim. Uh, but I think in this case, I was about 20 years ahead of my time, which is <laughs> pretty good. Really. That's a pretty good way to compensate for all those times <laughs> when you felt like you were behind the times. Yeah. You've been so yeah. far ahead. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Um, it must be very odd having people write about your work in their way and critics come along don't they and you talk about it and reviewers and those yeah. kind of things is yeah. a strange but you can't be too wimpish moment. about that I don't think um, you've just got to take it and get on Richard says to me that, um, it, that, that publishing a book is, is like a game of badminton so the people hit it from both ends yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they whack it as hard as they, they can they whack as well, it so. as hard as they can and you can't be too sort of hopeless about it 
Well, that's, um, that's, that's a terrifying way of thinking about it. Um, I, I think we've come to the part of the evening where I'm going to ask you to um, read a little bit from... The yes, okay. So. I, I promise you this won't be very long. I know that long readings by authors are exactly what you dread. It's sort of it. Um, I want to read from a, a, a short section near the beginning of the book um, so that you get a, just get a flavour of what this little Gustav is going through. He's five years old um, at the time and he's at this kindergarten school. And um, he, as I said, he lives with this mother who um, he adores, but she is incapable of loving him back. Uh, you know, a tragedy in somebody's life. Um, and, um, and then uh, the, the, the most significant thing that happens to him is this boy Anton arrives at the kindergarten school where they are. And he is in floods of tears, this Anton. Um, he's a Jewish boy who has been taken away from another school in a different city. And he's very, very unhappy. And Gustav, who is this little kindly soul, is chosen by the, uh, by the teacher to be the one to comfort Anton. And as sometimes happens, I think even in, in um, childhood, he has a sort of instant love for this boy. It's, it's like a kind of, he sees him and is, is completely captivated. Um, and he wants to help him to stop crying. He wants to make him laugh because he has a laugh which is, which is very musical and, and uh, is, is sort of very consoling to Gustav. So he loves this boy. And um, so he keeps saying to his mother, um, and they live in this very small apartment, um, can, we, can we invite... Um, Anton to tea. And um, Emily, the mother, keeps saying, no, no, the, the apartment's too small. Uh, we can't. Um, but eventually, she, he goes on and on. And then eventually, um, she, he does come to tea. Um, the only other thing I need to tell you about the passage I'm going to read is that the uh, little apartment where they live is, um, is on a street called Unter der Egg which was a name that I found in one of the many books that I read about, one, a name in a little Swiss town, and that it means under the harrow. But Unter der Egg, I thought, was just a lovely name. Occasionally names just pop up out of research. So that's where they live in this little shabby apartment on Unter der Egg. It was late spring by the time the invitation to tea went out. It was agreed that Anton would walk from school to Unter der Egg with Gustav and that his father would collect him from Emily's apartment at six o'clock. The father, it appeared, was a banker who'd worked for a large national bank in Bern and now worked for a smaller branch of that bank in Matzlingen. The reasons for the move weren't explained. All Anton said was that everybody in the family missed living in Bern. Herr Schweibel, the banker, missed his big bank. Frau Schweibel, who was a housewife, missed the wonderful shops. And Anton missed his old friends. Every May, in the courtyard at the back of the apartment, a white cherry tree bloomed. In this spring of 1948, perhaps because of the steady rains that had fallen at the end of winter, the flowers on the cherry were so abundant that the branches of the tree hung low towards the stones in the yard. Gustav's window, where he played with his tin train, overlooked the cherry tree, and he saw how the residents who went in and out of the building by that route almost invariably paused and stood staring at the tree, 
with its cargo of beauty, and sometimes reached out to it as they might have reached out in yearning to a lost person. Emily said that there had once been cherry trees at the front of the building all along Unterdeg, but they had been torn out, and now there was just this one tree in the courtyard. She said, the tree is special for people because it's lasted through all the upheaval, as certain things seem to do. This is 1947. What things, asked Christoph. <coughs> well, said Emily, like that white dog in the picture you pointed to me, in the rubble, sitting in the rubble of Berlin. It had survived. Oh, but you said it might have found a good master, or it might have starved to death. Well, I know I did, but the point was that when everything around it had been destroyed, it was still there for a while. It had hung on. So the Wednesday afternoon of the tea arrived. Gustav enjoyed walking home in the sunshine with Anton. He felt proud in a way that he couldn't explain. When Anton was introduced to Emily, Gustav saw that his mother stared at him for longer than she would normally stare at people she met for the first time, and Gustav wondered what was going through her mind. She said, you and Gustav go and play in his room for a little while, and then we'll have the tea and the Nussdorta. I hope you like Nussdorta. I don't know what it is, said Anton. Ah, said Emily, well, Gustav will explain it to you. They went to Gustav's room, where at this time of the day, the sun was falling in a diagonal across the window. And Gustav said, well, Nussdorter is a sort of pastry thing with caramel and walnuts inside. But Anton wasn't listening. They were standing at the windowsill next to the metal train, and Anton was staring down at the white cherry tree. He said, can we go down there? play in the courtyard. I want to see that tree. It's just a cherry tree, said Gustav. Can't we go down there? We'll have to ask Mutti. Emily said, well, all right, but I'll come with you. I don't want you making a noise on the stairs. You remember Herr Nieder is very ill, Gustav. Herr Nieder is our neighbor, said Gustav to Anton. He's dying. Oh, said Anton, has he got a piano? I don't know. Has he, Mutti? A piano, said Emily. Why do you ask? Well, said Anna, if he does, I could play for Elise for him. He might not want you to play for Elise, said Gustav. Oh, he would. Everybody likes me to play that. Well, not now, not now, said Emily. Let's go down very quietly, shall we? So they arrived in the courtyard, and Anton stared at the cherry tree, and his dark eyes widened. He ran to the tree and began to hop from one foot to the other and then to jump up and down, uttering little cries of joy. Gustav stood very still, watching Anton. He decided there was something connecting Anton's joy at the sight of the cherry blossom to his early morning weeping at the kindergarten, but he couldn't say what. He went towards his friend and took his hand, and together they began to skip round and round the tree, laughing until they were out of breath. Gustav had no idea exactly why he was skipping, but he knew that Anton knew, and that seemed to be enough. 
One or two of the apartment residents arrived in the courtyard and stopped to smile at the two boys dancing round the old cherry tree. But later, when Anton had gone home, Emily said, I suppose there may not be any cherry trees in Bern. It's unlikely, but one can't say for sure. Perhaps he'd never seen one before. I don't know, said Gustav. I think he is a nice boy, said Emily, but of course he is a Jew. What's a Jew, said Gustav. Ah, said Emily, well, the Jews are the people your father died trying to save. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.